a lot. He said a lot. I am so honored to be here. Um, I love Earl and Onika, their family. We, Philip and I have known them since they were newlyweds, so a long time. And we've been on vacation with them, and not just like vacation where you stay in separate hotel rooms and see each other only for dinner. We were on a sailboat, like where you spend the night on the boat. So where you're like, how you doing? Like really close. So I figure at the end of that week of being in such tight quarters with people, you're either going to love them forever or you'll never talk to them again. Right? We love them forever. And it has just been our great honor to be a part of Shoreline. So your family, I just want you to know that. And so when I get to come into a church and I'm family, that means I'm like a mama. You get a, you get a hug and a spanking at the same time. <laughs> All right, why don't you stand to your feet? This is your exercise for the day, up and down. Look at that person you're standing next to. They need prayer, right? Or a cappuccino, and I can't really help you with that. So we're going to pray for them. Father, I thank you for this incredible person I'm standing next to. And I thank you, God, that it's your kingdom that's worked out in their life. It's your kingdom that's established. And I ask, God, that today they would sense your favor and your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now you can have a seat. Well, I've been married to Philip for uh, 37 years, like in a row. And, um, you know, today, that's a freaking miracle, right? Um, so we've been married a long time. We have two uh, adult children. Uh, my daughter is my favorite because she's given me grandkids, and that's just how that is. But, uh, and I tell my son that all the time. So my son Jordan, when he was a teenager, I decided to go skiing, snow skiing with him and a friend of his. Okay, that was mistake number one. Because they're the black diamond skiers, and if you're familiar with snow skiing, you know that's like the advanced thing. And I'm, I'm the casually make my way down the mountain, looking at the scenery, on my way to hot chocolate kind of a skier, right? But I decided, no, I'm going to hang with the boys today. So I got on the lift with them, and then they get off the lift, and then they take off over a ledge, and I followed them straight over that ledge. Mistake number two because I land on the other side of that hill and it was like this. Like, seriously, I could have rested like this. It was practically vertical. And I landed and there, this hadn't gotten much snow and so there's bushes that are coming through. And so I grab a bush and I scream. I'm pretty sure this is gonna be my last day on planet Earth. And I hadn't really even given Philip a good kiss that day. So <laughs> I, there's no way I'm getting down this mountain, there's just no way, because if I decided to go down on my rear end, which that's always an option, it was too steep, I'd have become a snowball. So it was not gonna happen. And I had no idea how I was gonna get to the bottom of that hill. And so I scream, and Jordan and his friend turn around and stop, they're about a third of the way down already, because uh, they have these trick skis, and so they're, they're just like maneuvering around bushes, and I'm not that skier. And so I yell, I can't do this, you have to help me. And he looks at me, you know, like I'm crazy. And then he slowly gets himself back up the mountain. I don't even know how he did that. Uh, and then, you know, we came up with a plan to get me down. Well, actually, the truth is the boys came up with a plan. I was writing my obituary. Okay, so <laughs> they come up with this plan to get me, you know, down the hill. And so it's, I, it involves me putting my knees on their shoulder. It was this long process. So about 30 minutes later, they walk me to the bottom of that hill, and I hug them, and I kiss them, and, and then they just skied off as if they hadn't just saved my life, <laughs> right? 
Together is better. Yes. Together is always better. Yes. Ecclesiastes 4.9 puts it like this. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. See, I didn't know that in snow skiing you should have a buddy. Scuba diving, they always tell you have a buddy. Snow skiing, you should have a buddy. Anyway, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, did that already, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. You know, the book of Genesis tells us, in the beginning, God created everything. Right? The light, the galaxies, the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, the earth, land, water, clouds, rivers, mountains, birds, fish, plants, animals, all of it. And then on day six of this creative process, God finally got down to what was the purpose of everything that he'd spoken into existence. He said this in Genesis 1.26. Let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature. So he creates us in his image, and then he says this in Genesis 2.18. And the Lord God said... It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a companion who will help him. That's not, he said it's not good to be alone. Now understand, when God created Adam, at first it was just him, right? He had this beautiful garden to live in, and even though, I mean, it looked, it looked as if he had all that he needed. He had this perfect world to live in. He had no health concerns, no financial problems, no career concerns, no relational turmoil, and yet there was still something missing. Why? Why? Because man was not created to just connect with God. It is in our DNA to connect with one another. We are designed to need each other. We're designed to connect with one another. Even Jesus, when he walked the earth, needed friends. Mark 3 says he, he picked the 12 apostles that they might simply be with him. They were his buddies. Together is a big deal to God. We were not created to function at our best in isolation. We were designed to be a part of something bigger. We were created for team, for family, for unity, for community. Together is a very big deal to God. You know, there's a story in the Bible about Joshua and Moses and the children of Israel. And Joshua and the army were down in a valley and they're fighting you know, this battle and Moses is up on a hill overlooking the battle. And as long as Moses held his hands toward heaven, then Joshua and the army got victory. But his arms started getting tired and he felt the responsibility of keeping his hands in the air. How was he gonna do it? Well, he wasn't by himself. Aaron and Hur, two men came up right beside him and lifted his hands up. And together, they saw the children of Israel get victory. Victory happened because they each fulfilled their role. And each role had a different cost. See, Joshua could have thought, hey, 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 I could die down here. I want to be up there on the hill holding up the arms safe from the swords and spears and all that. Why can't I be up there? And Aaron and her could have thought, why am I having to hold up your arms? Why can't you hold up my arms? Let me just ask you, are you willing to be the one that holds up the arms? If it means that together we get victory? Yes. See, they got victory because victory was more important than any individual role. Okay, so we know that we overcome challenges together. We know that victory is sweeter when we do it together. We've been created to do life together. So why, why do we have such a challenge with together? Well, I can think of a few reasons. One, to be honest, I don't think our culture and modern life promote close friendships. I mean, think about it. In our world today, 
Facebook would be one of the ways that people you know, connect with each other. And the Facebook community, actually, on its news page, it says it's a community of almost 3 billion people. If it was a country, it would be the second largest, right there under China. So it's a big community. Now, I think it's a, perhaps a, a fun way to you know, stay connected, but I also think it creates this illusion. Because real friendship involves more than status updating and posting photos. I mean, that's fun. But real relationship is more. See, the number of friends you have on you know, TikTok and Facebook and Instagram, they're not your real friends. And then the second reason I think sometimes doing together is hard is because we're fast food people. We want what we want and we want it now. Amazon isn't enough, Amazon Prime isn't enough. I want Amazon when I think about it. We want it now. But that doesn't work for community. You can't microwave friendships. And then another reason I think together is hard is because, come on, it's risky. It's risky. To be open and to be honest is risky. To let someone inside, to let them see the real you, because then they could maybe hurt you. And so then we're afraid. You know, relationships involve vulnerability. We're afraid they'll expect too much or take advantage of us or betray us. And you know what? They might. Because the more someone knows you, then the more ammunition they have if they ever turn against you. And so we build walls. We build walls that separate us from one another. One block at a time, we build walls. And one of the blocks I think we use that separate us from one another is just comparison. See, comparison is when I look at your life and then compare it to mine, I feel bad about my life. I mean, because maybe you've achieved more in life or you have more money or whatever. And so I think there's this division. Society has created this division which causes us to compare where we're different. Romans 12, 6 says this. Let's just go ahead and be what we were made to be without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something we aren't. Right, and social media doesn't help with this. I think it was initially designed to connect us, but now in so many ways it's a tool that divides us. And comparison, right, comparison leads to jealousy. Jealousy, right? And, you know, jealousy is like whether it's the resentment against someone's success. No, jealousy. And actually, jealousy is the breeding ground for murder. Remember Cain and Abel? I mean, maybe not necessarily the murder of a life, but a reputation, a friendship, a destiny. So the opposite to me in so many ways of jealousy would be loyal. Right? Loyal, not competitive, loyal, not envious, loyal, not comparing, loyal. And the obvious definitions of loyalty me are devoted to and stand by, but the one definition I love for loyalty is to forsake any ambition that would compromise the relationship. See, don't let opportunity trump relationship. Only part of my destiny is in me. The rest is in other people. Because remember, we're one body. We need the body. And what I found is that many people are loyal as long as it's convenient. Right? Until something better comes along. Or until someone comes along who can do more for you. So then you ditch the old friend and go with the new one. When you're loyal, you're committed through the difficult times, through the hard times. But I've actually found that it might be easier for someone to be loyal 
in the hard times than the good times. So let me ask you, how do you react when your friend has some success in an area that you're hoping for? Or you're single and you've been single since dinosaurs roamed the earth and you want to be married and then your friend gets engaged. How do you react then? Like, woo-hoo. <laughs> right? Or you spent hours studying for a test only to get a C and then your friend gets an A without really even studying. So annoying, right? Or you've been trying to have a baby. You've done all of the in vitro procedures. You've been trying to have a baby, and then your friends get pregnant with their third, and they hit was just a whoops. You're like, pow. <laughs> or you're both applying for the same job, and he gets it. Can you be loyal then? Or do you pull away? Why do we build a wall? Why do we do that? Why is it that we get jealous of each other? Honestly, jealousy is the stupidest feeling and emotion. It just is. We are each running in the lane that God has assigned us to run in. I don't need what's in your lane. Everything I need to fulfill my purpose is in my lane. I don't need what's in your lane. My job is to look at you running in your lane and go, you go. Right? Not to secretly be jealous of what you got going on. It's to focus on what God has trusted me to do, knowing that every person I'm going to reach is in the lane he's assigned me to run in. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul writes this, isn't everything you have and everything you are sheer gifts from God? So what's the point of all of this comparing and competing? And then there's a time when the Apostle Paul is in prison. And there are some other teachers who are out there teaching the gospel and some of Paul's followers started complaining about those other teachers. And then Paul says this while he's in prison. In Philippians chapter 1, he says this. It's true that some here preach Christ because with me out of the way, they think they'll step right into the spotlight. But the others do it with the best heart in the world. One group is motivated by pure love, knowing that I'm here defending the message, wanting to help. And the others, now that I'm out of the picture, are merely greedy, hoping to get something out of it for themselves. Their motives are bad. They see me as their competition, and so the worse it goes for me, the better they think for them. So how am I to respond? I've just decided that I really don't care about their motives, whether mixed, bad, or indifferent, because every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is proclaimed, so I just cheer him on. Oh, that's so confrontive to me. In a season where he is in prison, and he's perhaps the best preacher there is, there are others out there doing it, and he could have said, it's just not fair. It is not fair. But he didn't. He just cheered him on. And you know, actually, maybe it gave other people a chance to teach and to grow. Now, what are some other blocks that we use to build a wall that separate us? Well, how about, you know, hurt, unforgiveness? I mean, I love it when relationships are uncomplicated. Like all two days of them. <laughs> right? But the reality is they're messy because people are weird. Yeah. I mean, not you, but the person that is behind you. Don't look. They're really strange. They're just messy. Sometimes relationships are messy, and it requires a little bit of work. You know, and recently I had this choice to make. 
and a friendship that mattered. And uh, I've been friends with them for years, and they did something really painful to me. Um, and I hurt. And I, I wanted to just withdraw behind like the wall and find a scripture for it and um, let the relationship settle into an acquaintance. I could have, but I chose to have the messy conversation. And another one. And we're not done yet. I'm just doing my part to give God room to bring restoration. The messy conversation, it's still a work in progress. See, forgiveness doesn't excuse their behavior. Forgiveness prevents their behavior from destroying your heart. And I think sometimes we give up on relationships as if they weren't an assignment from God. Now, in some particular situations, and in this one, I felt God say to me, Holly, don't turn your back, because turning your back is what you do behind a wall. He said, don't turn your back, just step back a minute. And so that gives room for the Spirit of God to do what he's going to do. Right? And then what else do we use to build our wall that separate us from each other? Well, how about just our differences? Because you're different than me. Pretty much it's designed on purpose. But our differences. There are, you know, there's different personalities. You know, there's the introverts who are hoping I don't call on them. There's the extroverts. There's the uh, task-driven, those who are aware of a job that needs doing. There's the relational-driven, those who care about the people. There's the talks a lot. There's the hardly ever talks. And it becomes a wall because we start to think someone should be different. We say something like, you are just too fill-in-the-blank. Too pushy too quiet, too loud, too aggressive, too happy. I've gotten that one. You're just two. And so we, in a subtle way, we use this, well, we just had a personality conflict. I don't think God's going to buy that. So what are you using to separate yourself? Okay, now I'm going to get all up in your business. Are you ready? Some of you are going, you haven't already? Anyway, here we go. Okay, we build a wall just with our different political beliefs. In this room. In this room and in San Antonio and at North Campus and those of you watching online, in this room... There are staunch Democrats and hardcore Republicans and everything in between. Will we let that divide us? You know, Jesus didn't come to change the political system. He came for the hearts of men and women. When he was walking planet Earth, when he was walking planet Earth, Rome was an incredibly corrupt political system and incredibly unjust. Even the disciples initially thought that for sure he was going to overthrow the government, but he didn't. He came for the hearts of all people because nothing will change until our hearts change. Nothing will change until our hearts change. So... Before you, you ready? 
So before you make that post or write that blog, I want you to ask this question. Is this going to help build unity? And if it doesn't, knock it off. The last prayer that Jesus prayed before he went to the cross, he prayed, make them one as we are one. Make them one. He's talking about you and me. Make them one. And then Jesus says some other place. He says, the world will know you're my disciples by how well you love each other. And I don't think we've been that great at it lately. This has been the saddest part of these last few years. Right, we, want to, we want to graduate to loving our enemies. Yeah. And we can't even love each other. Yeah. We're so busy building a wall with our self-righteous little attitude. <laughs> and he's saying, can you love each other? Mm. So if you're in here and you're not actually a Christ follower, I want to apologize to you. Because Christians who are supposed to be known by how well we love each other, we haven't done that great of a job. And I'm sorry for what you've seen. But we're going to get better, aren't we? All right, differences. So there's there's different ways to do church, right? There's about a thousand, at least, different ways to do church, right? Some sing hymns, some don't. Some speak in tongues, some don't. Some churches discourage the wearing of makeup, some wear it a lot. Some say dancing is bad, some dance with passion. Some say no drinking alcohol, some serve it at communion. Some say women shouldn't teach, some have women pastors. Some say there shouldn't be full instruments in the band and and church, and some have full bands. And really, why do we let issues like this divide us? Or build walls between us. Wouldn't the fact that we love Jesus and believe that he's the way, the truth, and the life be enough to unite us? Paul wrote this in Romans. He says, oh, you're going to love this part. He says, welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. (laughs) And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. Even when it seems that they're strong on opinions but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. And then there's certainly different cultures. Heaven's going to be a surprise for some people. (laughs) What I love, what I love about Oasis Church that we had the honor and privilege of building for 35 years, and what I love about Shoreline City is the diversity. But let me just take it to the next step. You know, you can go to Ranger Stadium and it's the diverse crowd. Jesus isn't after the crowd, he's after the relationships. So you can sit next to each other, but are you connecting with one another? Are you doing life with each other? Does your dinner table always look the same? Don't build a wall because someone's different than you. Together is a big deal to God. And uh, it's only together with God's people that we will fulfill 
God's plan for our individual lives, and it's only together with God's people that we'll accomplish his plans for planet Earth. Together involves all of us. It certainly involves more than one generation. There are those who've come before and those who will follow. You know, Hebrews 11 lists all of the amazing men and women of faith who came before us, you know, Abraham and Joseph and Barak and Sarah, and many were tortured because of their faith. And then it ends with this verse in Hebrews 11:39. It says, but not one of these people, talking about the legends of faith, even though their lives of faith were exemplary, got their hands on what was promised. God had a better plan for us that their faith and our faith would come together to make one completed whole, their lives of faith not complete apart from ours. So the writer of Hebrews is making the point that it's their faith and ours together. I have to live my life knowing that there are those who will follow. Right? Now, unlike volleyball or basketball, most track and field events are predominantly individual endeavors. And one of the exceptions, however, is the relay race. And I loved running in the relay races because while I had to do my best to run my lap with commitment and with endurance, whether we won the race or not was not entirely on me. I am aware, though, that my performance could help my team or it could cost the race. I was entirely responsible for the lap that I had been entrusted with. So I spent months training for my lap. I couldn't blame anyone else for my performance. If I tripped, if I stepped out of the lane, or if I got a cramp, the fault was mine alone. However, I found that most relay races are not won and lost in the individual laps, but rather in the baton exchange. Just ask the 2004 U.S. Olympic women's 4x100 team and the 2008 U.S. Olympic relay team. In 2004, the baton exchange was made outside of the zone, and in 2008, the baton was dropped. And so no matter how fast, and they were fast, no matter how fast the individual laps were, how spectacular they were, the whole thing was lost because of the exchange between the runners. Christianity is a relay race. There are legends of faith who have gone before us. Centuries of baton passing have kept the faith alive. Your lap is important. My lap is important. But really, it's about the baton. It's all about the message of grace and truth, and hope, and life being passed to a new generation. While I live in this moment, and it's good to live in a moment, be present in a moment. While I live in this moment, I'm not living my life for this moment. I'm living my life for those to come. God is all about generations. I certainly want to cross the finish line of my life and hear God say, well done. But it's more than that. It's well done because I managed to get a baton into a hand of a generation who will run the next lap of the race. Right, right here and right now, no matter what campus you're at, there's a cloud of witnesses who've gone before us, and there are generations here in this room. If I could get the house lights up for a minute, this is the interactive part of the service house lights up, and those of you watching on the screen, you're going to do this too. Okay, I did a little study about some sociology and learned about some of the, the names of some generations. And so if you're in here and you're born between 1900 and 1945, 
Can you just lift your hand up so I can see it? Anybody? Where? Do we have one? Yes. All right. Can I get you to stand up? If that's you, can you stand up? I think there's a gentleman over here. Yes? Can I get you to stand up? I love it. Okay. Oh, there's a, look, there's a few of you. Wait, stay standing, stay standing. So sociologists call this generation the traditionalists. And they say that many of them generally experience hard times while growing up, which were followed by times of prosperity. They're savers, they're responsible, and this generation is incredibly loyal. And we are grateful for you. Thank you. All right. Now, if you're in here and you're born between 1946 and 1964, will you stand up? Okay. All right. These, these are the baby boomers. These are the post-war babies who grew up to be the radicals of the 70s and the yuppies of the 80s. They're ambitious, concerned about equal rights. They question most things. They do believe, however, that anything is possible. And so we're grateful for this generation. All right. If you're born between 1965 and 1979, will you stand up? This is Generation X. Now, their perceptions generally have been shaped by growing up, having to take care of themselves early and watching their politicians lie and their parents get laid off. <laughs> but this was the first generation where diversity really mattered. They're entrepreneurial. They think globally, and they're also the one who are going to challenge some status quo thoughts. So we're grateful for Generation X. All right, and if you're in here and you were born between 1980 and 1995, will you stand up? These are the millennials. <laughs> I love me some millennials. Okay, now typically, typically, most grew up as children of divorce. This generation hopes to be the next generation to turn around the wrong they see in the world today. Yeah. They did grow up a little more sheltered than any other generation. <laughs> and they can be a little bit self-absorbed. After all, all of you got a trophy. <laughs> but this generation is known for being generous yes. and, in, and tolerant of weaknesses in people filled with grace. So we're grateful for the millennials. And if you're in here and you're born between 1996 and 2010, just shut up. Anyway. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Stand up. I'm counting on you. I'm counting on you. Generation Z is the first generation to be raised from the beginning with a digital connection to society. 
They didn't have to learn how to go from this. They don't even know what this is. This generation also, more than most, deals with anxiety. They are the most racially and ethnically diverse generation. And they're on track to become the most educated generation. I'm grateful for you guys, you're awesome. God's plan takes generations. What one generation started, another will finish. God is working his salvation story, and it will take all of us. There is a generation who's gone before, and there's a generation coming up that needs to see me faithful. Faithful. I've birthed one son and one daughter, but I have multiplied hundreds of spiritual sons and daughters. And what they need to see is faithfulness. That I stay the course. That I'm prepared and ready and not threatened by the generation coming up behind me so I can put a baton in their hand and cheer them on. And so we have to be careful that we don't let our age differences be a part of a wall. See, if you start to think oh my gosh, those Gen Zers, they're just nuts, I can't hang out with them, then you're missing the point. And if you, if you start to be, if, if the Gen Zers and the millennials start to think, oh, you know, the, those old people, God bless them, then you won't make it. One generation needs the other. It's together. That's why a healthy church like this one has generations represented and there are even more, you know, more in the children's ministry. Generations. Generations. See, I just don't think... When you get to meet your father in heaven, I don't think he's going to let you get away with, well, you know, God, they were really hard to get along with. <laughs> they voted for that guy. I don't think he's going to let you get away with that. Not when the last prayer Jesus prayed was make him one. And my last scripture is this one, Genesis 11, verse 6. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And now nothing they have imagined they can do will be impossible for them. Now I'm still trying to figure out that promise. The context of this verse is that people were trying to, you know, build this tower. They called it the Tower of Babel, build this tower up to heaven and because they were trying to make a name for themselves. So it was stupid. What they were doing is stupid. But the principle is true. Principle is true. The point is the same. What he's saying is if you and I become one people, not the same, but a people united, speaking one language, not the same language, but a united language, then nothing will be impossible for us. Nothing. Not the plight of the orphan, not cancer, not crime, not loneliness, not human trafficking. When we're united, everything is possible. Our marriages, reconciling friendships, building churches, solving problems. Hey, Shoreline City, next Sunday is your Miracle Sunday. And then you've got a building you're going to be moving into. You know how you do it? Together? Yeah. Together? 
So you have to be honest where you have built walls. You have to be honest. Because it won't work. And you have to take the wall down. And you know what? I wish I could tell you that you could just kick it over. But you take the wall down the same way you built it. Same way I built it. One block at a time. It's one decision. It's saying something like, I'm going to go find the quietest person in the room and hang out with them. I'm going to find that young person that was really irritating me (laughs) and buy him a cappuccino. I'm going to forgive that person. I'm going to forgive him again. I'm going to forgive him again. I'm going to have a conversation with someone who thinks very differently than me politically, and I'm not going to yell or cuss. (laughs) That's how you get rid of the wall, one block at a time. You take it down the same way you built it. God's trusting you and me with this time in history. If he'd wanted you born any other time, you'd have been born then. Right now, when there is more pain and more division and more heartbreak and more isolation and more arrogance, all of it, God trusted you with this moment. He must think you can be a part of the solution. We'll only do it together. Don't build a wall and separate yourself from the people that Jesus died for. We can do it, right? We can do it. We can actually walk as one. We can do it. Now I'm just going to ask you right now, maybe just to close your eyes. This is your, that's just a private moment for you. I don't know most people in this room and I don't know what your spiritual life is like. Maybe there's some of you in here and at one point, you know, you just, you were far from God and maybe you've never actually let the love of God in. You've never received what Jesus did on the cross. He went to that cross and paid the price for every sin and failure. He paid the price to not only forgive you for your past, but to give you a future filled with hope. You can leave here today free from guilt and shame. You can leave here today part of family. Or maybe you're in here and at one point, maybe you had said yes to Jesus, but if you were honest, you've grown a little cold in your heart. Maybe you kind of have one foot in and one foot out. Maybe you just, like me, you got cynical about people. And so if you were honest, you're a little bit behind a wall. Maybe you know how to go through the motions, but if you were honest, you're not passionately following Jesus. Then I'm going to pray for you. So if you're in here and for the first time, you're ready to surrender your heart and your life to this God who loves you so much. You don't have to change for him to love you anymore. He loves you just the way you are. He loves you. Maybe today's the day you can truly receive that love. Or if you're in here, and you know it's time to get back up. Take that deep breath. And one more time, take a step in following Jesus. 
Well, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to count to three, and I'm just going to ask you to put your hands up and put it back down just so I know who I'm praying for. So if you're in here and for the first time you're saying yes to the love of God, or you're in here and you know it's time to get up one more time and take a step in following Jesus. Don't worry about what anybody around you is doing. It's not an accident that you're here. So I'm going to count to three. And just put your hands up and then put them down, but just so I can see it. One, two, three. Just put the hands up so I can see it. That's great. I see about, I don't know, 20 maybe, 25, 6, 27, 28 hands, 30. God, I see, I see most of the hands, but you know their name. You know who they are. You know why they were born. And I thank you, God, that they were humble enough and brave enough to lift their hands, acknowledging their need for you. And so I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and we'll all pray it together. Christianity is a communal faith. We do it together. So I'm going to lead us in this prayer, and those of you that raised your hands, you're believing these words, and you're also going to be praying it with us. So we'll all pray it together. Everyone say, Father, all of us, Father, thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. And from this moment on, I choose you. I surrender my heart and my life to Jesus. Amen. 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 Welcome. Amen.